Hey, we are continuing in our study in the book of Hebrews, and uh, if you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, uh, you know the author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is, he's building this case. He's been building it since chapter one, but particularly in chapters eight, nine, and ten, um, he's really sort of getting at the pinnacle of everything he's trying to communicate uh, to, to the audience. And primarily the idea here, as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, is the idea that, that the Lord Jesus Christ is a greater priest, he's a greater high priest, mediating a greater covenant in a greater reality. That in every way, uh, the work that Christ does on our behalf in order to establish redemption, to offer redemption to us, is greater than the Old Testament Levitical system, the sacrifices and procedures and the ritual and routine. In fact, at the beginning of chapter 10, he's kind of repeating some of the same stuff. And you, you might be tempted, especially if you've been in this study with us throughout, when you start to hear things that are redundant or you start to hear repetition, uh, there, there might be a tendency in you to kind of tune it out because you're like, oh, yeah, I get it. I mean, so, for instance, in the first four verses, it says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. These are themes and ideas we've heard before. The, the idea that the Old Testament system was just a copy or a shadow, that it was never meant to, to satisfy what was needed in the heart and life of men and women, but rather it was always kind of a flashing sign, a replica of something it was pointing ahead to. These are themes we've heard before, that the old system wasn't capable of perfecting those who draw near, that, that it was powerless to do that. You might be tempted to go, yeah, I've heard this before, like, I get it, but why is he saying the same things again and again? Let us all be really careful as we come to chapter 10 to not sort of tune out the repetition and the redundancy because in this chapter, the writer is making a new point that is a vital point, a crucial point, and you don't want to miss it. So in the first four verses, there is a little bit of a repeating of what he's already said. He says in two, otherwise... Would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? He says they have to do this sacrificial stuff every year. They have to do it again and again because it was incapable of perfecting the people. So there had to be repetition. They had to come to it again and again. In fact, if it was capable of perfecting them, they'd have been done. There would have been no need for repetition. There would have been no need to come to the temple again and again. He says it isn't perfect, and in fact, in verse 3, in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sin every year. For people whose consciences weren't cleansed and the law couldn't cleanse their conscience, it was kind of painful to have to go to the tabernacle every year and be constantly reminded about how broken and wicked you were, and that's all the Old Testament system was able to do, was to remind us of our brokenness. It says in verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So some familiar territory for some of us, he's talking about the fact that the old system was a shadow, a copy, that it was repetitive, that it was ineffective, that it constantly reminded already guilty people of their guilt, that it came to a place of just being routine sort of religiosity, just a thing you did because you were told to do it, kind of going through the motions. He says here that animal blood cannot perfect people. Ultimately, the old system was powerless. But here's where this text gets interesting and where he begins then to add something new that we haven't seen before or that we haven't processed before in Hebrews at least. After saying this with redundancy, he goes on then to say something in consequence. So it says all of this, the old system doesn't work. Then in verse five, he says, consequently, or because of all of that, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, this is verse five, when Christ came into the world, 
He said, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. The one thing we haven't really talked about is we've been talking about the, the uh, inefficiency or the ineffectiveness of the old system is the fact that not only was it powerless and had to be repeated and whatever else, but there is something very true that the writer's saying to us now, which is it also is not what God desired. That old sacrificial system isn't what God wanted. It, it didn't satisfy his will and what he hoped for and what he desired was something altogether different. You know, it's important for us to think concretely about what it is that God wants. The creator of the universe, he gave us life and breath. He put us on this planet together and it behooves us to take the time and think, why? What is it that he wants? And Jesus here is quoted from Psalm 40, which is actually a Psalm of David. We'll talk about that in a second. He's quoted as saying, you didn't want these burnt offerings. You didn't want these Old Testament sacrifices. They were not what you desired. You and I, we have to pay attention to what even the people around us desire, right? It makes sense for us to pay attention to what people want. I remember um, when, I, when I first started dating my wife, I was, uh, I was 18, uh, and she was, she was also, we're like the same age, so she was 18 at the same time too, but I hadn't really ever like fully fallen in love, and I, I met my wife, and I, she wasn't my wife, but I met this girl, she's beautiful, I really want to like trick her into marrying me, you know what I'm saying? And uh, so I'm, I'm trying to do all the right stuff, but at that point, as a young guy, like, Everything I know about trying to woo women is stuff that I like saw on TV or in movies or whatever, right? So there's just kind of standard things you do to try and win the heart of the girl you like. And so like I just did the standard stuff. I bought chocolates and I bought roses, right? And neither of those things are cheap. So you got to save up a little bit. You take the chocolate and the roses. You go to the girl. You go, I really care about you. I got you some chocolate and roses. And my wife was always, she was always cool about it. She's always like, oh, thanks. But I could kind of tell that it wasn't just, it wasn't like hitting the mark. You know, there was some, something was off. I had been misinformed by pop culture, right? That that wasn't going to do the trick. And come to find out, as I got to know her, and as I paid attention to her, and as I entered into a relationship with her, I realized that my wife, you know, she'll eat chocolate, but that's not like her favorite. My wife, her favorite candy of all time, sweet tarts, right? Just like the gross, like she likes Willy Wonka candy, like she likes jelly beans, she likes Skittles, she likes Starburst, like all those like kind of cheap candies. And to be honest, that worked out really good for me because I was a college student. I didn't have a lot of money. It was nice that my wife had cheap taste, right? <laughs> Don't make the next joke, right? I know the joke you're going to make. Don't make it. She doesn't, she didn't have cheap taste in every category, right? But it was interesting, she didn't want chocolate, she wanted, she wanted like sugary, fruity candy, right? I also found out my wife doesn't really care about roses, like that's not really her thing. She, she thinks they smell good and when I bought them for her, she'd put them on the counter or whatever, but she doesn't really love roses. Her favorite flower is tulips. Now here's the nice thing about tulips, they also are cheap, right? They're not as expensive as roses. And my wife didn't even want tulips like in a fancy spread. She just kind of likes it when you get some tulips in a bundle from the market and you just bring them home and you put them in a vase. Like that's my wife's favorite. Both of which were quite money saving for me, which was really nice, right? Can you imagine finding out that my wife likes sweet tarts and tulips and then continuing to bring her chocolate and roses? Why would I do that? I wouldn't do that. Once I know what her desire is, once I know what would please her, what, what really pleases her heart, then it makes sense to bring to her the things I know that she loves. 
And so here when we come to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, the writer has not just said, well, the, the system was ineffective, but now he puts into the mouth of Jesus... A quotation from Psalm 40, which was originally written down as inspired by the Holy Spirit by King David. Psalm 40 was written by King David. Now he puts this psalm by King David in the mouth of Jesus, Jesus being quoted here as he came. So it says in verse 5, when Christ came. So this is a pre-incarnate quote. This is not a quote we see in the Gospels. You can look Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus doesn't say this then. The quote that we're seeing in Hebrews 10 is a pre-incarnate quote of Jesus. And here's what's really fascinating about it. It's a quote of Jesus quoting King David out of the Psalms. It happens either one of two ways. Either what we're seeing in this quote, it's either, it's either Jesus, the Lord Jesus, infinite and eternal, in eternity, looking at God the Father and quoting a psalm that was written by a human being inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? He knows the, the scriptures. We see in Jesus' ministry that he knows and loves the Bible. So it's possible that in eternity, Jesus recollects this psalm in Psalm chapter 40 that King David wrote and quotes it as, as an expression of why he was coming to the earth. It's also possible, the sequence of events may be different, it may also be possible that when David wrote Psalm 40, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that he was actually quoting, unbeknownst to him, something that the Lord Jesus had said in eternity before human history even began, right? One way or another, we see the Psalm of David in the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ, and what he says is this, I know what you desire, and I know what you don't desire, He looks at God the Father and he says, you have not been pleased by these offerings and these sacrifices. That isn't what you want. You've prepared a body for me. And now he says, I have come to do your will. And there's a vast difference between what pleases God, what God desires, and what human history has brought. We see all throughout the Old Testament, again and again and again, God telling his people, I'm not happy with routine religion. I'm not happy with you just doing the thing I told you to do, but your hearts are far from me, right? God says again and again, I don't want you to just draw near me with your lips and, 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 and your hearts are far away. I want your heart. We don't have a ton of time this morning, but for the sake of just establishing this truth, I want to read you a couple of Old Testament passages. If you have, a, if you have the, the desire, you can write these down. There's a card on the seat back. You can take notes and look at these passages in more detail later. But as one example of this, look at 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, and we'll put it on the screens. This is the prophet Samuel speaking on God's behalf to King Saul. King Saul had been instructed to, uh, to conquer his enemies and then not to take any of the spoils of war, but to leave them. But King Saul takes the spoils of war, and then when Samuel confronts him and says, hey, bro, God told you not to take those things, this is what... Saul basically says, well, I'm going to use them in sacrifice to God. I took all this stuff, but I'm going to use it to, to make an offering to God. Samuel says this, 1 Samuel 15, 22. Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. He says, look, King Saul, God doesn't want all of this rich stuff to be used in his service if it's in direct contradiction to what he commanded you to do. God cares more about your heart than he does what you put on the altar. In Isaiah chapter one, verse 11 and following, God says this. He says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. 
I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourself clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. What's he saying? Same thing. He's saying, I don't want your meaningless worship. I don't want your vain consecrations. I want your heart. I don't care about you going through the motions. I don't care about you just checking the boxes and doing the things for the sake of doing them. Can you see me, God says? I want you to know me. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 22. It says, for in the day, this is God speaking about Exodus. He says, in the day that I brought them out from the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the way that I command you that it may be well with you. What's God saying in Jeremiah? I don't care about the sacrifices and doing the stuff I want your heart. Same thing, Amos chapter five, verse 21. God says, I hate I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an everlasting stream. Micah chapter 6, verse 6 and following says... Uh, This is Micah saying, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself down before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require? What does the Lord desire of you but to do justice and to love kindness, and to walk humbly. What's God saying? I'm not looking for religiosity. I'm not looking for automatons who just do what they're told, but their hearts are absent. I want your heart, God says. In fact, one of my favorite of all these passages is in Malachi chapter one. The people in Malachi were bringing to God kind of all of their worship scraps, right? They'd take their best animals and they'd use them for themselves, for their breeding and for their food. And then whatever like the weird sort of leftover animals were, those were the ones they'd bring to God. Like the weird sheep with the one eye that went the wrong direction or whatever. Like They're like, oh, we're not gonna eat this one because it's kind of a weird sheep, so let's give it to God. And literally in Malachi, God says, I don't want your weird offerings. I don't want your leftovers and your scraps. He goes so far in Malachi 1.10 to say, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. He goes so far in Malachi to say, I wish there was one of you who would padlock shut the doors of your church rather than have you bring me any more sacrifices while your heart's in another place. I want your heart, God says. Again and again and again. So it's no surprise 
that the writer to Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10 says, look, the sacrificial system didn't work and Jesus came, but he didn't work simply because the Old Testament system didn't function. He didn't come just because that didn't work. It wasn't necessity that brought Jesus. Listen to this. I think sometimes we have this mindset that goes, the Old Testament system didn't work. All the sacrificing of animals and bulls and sheep and goats, it didn't cleanse people's hearts. It didn't correct the relationship between man and God. It was ineffective. And so at some point, God and Jesus kind of looked at each other and went, you know, this thing we established, it it doesn't work. So we got to come up with a different plan. So they rerouted and went a different direction. And sometimes we think that Jesus came to the earth and took the sin of men on himself because he had to. There was some sort of necessity that required him to come. Or maybe that it was just a part of his nature, that that's just who God is, he's sacrificial, so he just does that kind of thing, and he he couldn't have done otherwise. But what Hebrews 10 tells us is that the sacrifice of Christ wasn't solely of necessity or solely of nature, that it was a response to the desire of God. That it was a response and an expression to what pleases God. Jesus says, you don't want burnt offerings. You don't want sacrifices. You gave me a body and here I am. I'm using it for your will. That's what God desires. Back to Hebrews chapter 10. Jesus understood the heart of God. The heart of God for grace, for redemption, Then I said, behold, verse seven, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. What Jesus is about is having a heart that is aligned with the heart of God. It's not about just jumping through the hoops. It's not about just doing the religious activity. It's about being connected to God's heart. It says in verse eight of chapter 10 of Hebrews, when he said above, you have desired neither, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first. What's the first? Well, the first is that old system that was just routines and religion. It was just people going through the motions He does away with the first because it doesn't please God. And in doing away with the first, it says here in verse verse nine, he does away with the first in order to establish the second. Well, what's the second? The second is bringing to bear what God has given you for the service of his will. A body you've prepared for me. Here I am to do your will. He gets rid of the old system. He he throws away the old system that says, let's just do these things because God demands it. And instead he says, look at God and understand what he desires. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Look at verse 10. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Don't get thrown off by that word sanctification. I know it's a big, like, churchy word, and it can feel a little bit confusing. Sanctification is actually really easy to understand. The word sanctification could just as easily be translated holiness. It means to be set apart, to be set apart for a specific purpose. And in fact, the idea of sanctification is the idea of It's coming in alignment with your created purpose, right? Or coming in alignment with the reason for which you were created. We've talked before in this church about the fact that each and every one of us, no matter who we are, that we were put on the planet, we were built from the ground up to glorify God in our thoughts and words and deeds and attitudes. And so when we talk about sanctification, all sanctification is, is progressively coming in alignment with the purpose for which we were built, 
Sanctification is holiness. We've been built to be set apart for God's service. And sanctification is just coming along in alignment with that. It says in verse 10 that by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There's an important part of verse 10 that you absolutely don't want to miss. How does the sanctification happen? How does the sanctification happen? This, this purification of us, this perfection in an ongoing way, how does it happen? It happens by the will of God. And that's the thing in Hebrews chapter 10 that's different than what we've seen before is that the work that Jesus does, he does as an expression of God's heart, an expression of God's character and God's love. The sanctification that is ours isn't ours out of necessity. It's not something God felt obligated to do. It's not something we buy. It's not something we trade for. It's not something we've arranged It is something that occurs because of God's will. It is God's desire to rescue us from sin and death. It is God's desire to show us his heart and invite us to know him and to be our God and that we would be his people. What Jesus does on our behalf on the cross, taking the sin of the world, he does as an expression of God's desire. This is what God wanted. It was always God's plan for the story of humans' relationship with God to be a story about grace. That our story would be a story about grace. That was always God's point. It says in Romans chapter five, in Romans chapter five, verse 18, it says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Don't miss this, verse 21 of Romans 5. Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It was God's will that sin and death wouldn't be on the throne, that sin and death wouldn't be the theme of human history, that sin and death wouldn't be the focal point of each and every one of our lives, but that grace would be the story. It was God's desire to rescue us through no effort of our own because it was always his will to capture our hearts and not just our actions. That's why Jesus again and again in his ministry will say, I'm just here doing the will of my father, right? He says that in John chapter four. John four thirty four. he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What's that work? The grace of God, rescuing sinful man from death. It says in John five, verse 30, in John five thirty, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John chapter 6, I mean, it's almost on every page. John chapter 6, verse 38. Jesus says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Church, don't miss this beautiful principle here, the the, the idea that the incarnation of Christ is in response to Jesus understanding the heart of the Father, that the redemption he affords us is an expression of God's will. 
his choice. God's will is the origin of our salvation. Christ's sacrifice is the means of our salvation. Look at what it says again. Back to Hebrews chapter 10. It says in verse 11, every priest stands daily at his services, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down, right? The Old Testament priests, they never got to rest because there was always more sin to be sacrificed for, right? It was just like this perpetual project that was never done. There were no chairs in the tabernacle, right? No place to rest. But it says when Jesus finished one perfect sacrifice for all time, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. What's indicated by that picture? Well, the picture is this. Number one, Christ's work is completed. In John 19, on the cross, when Jesus says, it is finished, he's not just talking about his life. He's talking about the work he came to do as an expression of the will of God. Jesus sits down, that's a picture of his completed work. Not only that, when Jesus sits down at the right hand of the Father, it's a perfect picture of God's satisfaction and pleasure in the work of Christ, right? God doesn't look at Jesus and go, ah, that's not your place. That's not a place for you. This is where I sit, right? You go find yourself another spot. No, Jesus sits down at the right hand of the Father because that's where he belongs. So we not only see the completion or the, or the fulfillment of his work, we see the satisfaction and the pleasure of God, and we also see the Lord Jesus enthroned. He sits down at the right hand of the Father as an indicator that he isn't just a savior, that he isn't just a, a, a compassionate man who cared for the weak and the lost, but he is the king of the universe, And his work is done. Our redemption, our salvation, is an expression of the will of the Father. That's the origin. The the means are the sacrifice of Christ. It says in verses verses 12 and 13, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. It's kind of weird that Christ is victorious and that he still has enemies, right? You'd sort of think that after this victory, he sits down at the right hand of the Father and there are no more enemies. But you live in the same world I do, don't you? And you see that even though that Jesus has accomplished this perfect sacrifice, there are many, many, many people who are living in opposition of God. Not only many people who are living in opposition of God, but many people and organizations and institutions that are living in opposition of God. Not to mention the fact that even, like 1 Corinthians will talk about the fact that the final enemy of Christ to be conquered is death itself. No, there, there is still a battle raging, right? The victory has been decided, but there is this period of time in which there are still a lot of people who are rebelling against God. We just, I think it was two weeks ago, they had uh, what they call Sanctity of Life Sunday, right? People rallying around the idea that we, that we have to stand up for unborn babies, that we have to say something about the, the rampant abortion that's happening in our country. And they care about the sanctity of life because God cares about the sanctity of life. But, but the reality is it isn't just abortion that's a problem, right? Because sometimes the very people who are militant about fighting abortion couldn't care less about what happened to those babies after they're born. They don't care less about the ones who have no mothers or have no fathers, who have no homes to live in. They don't care less about people who are living under the bridges a mile and a half from here. They don't care less about people who speak a different language or have a different skin color, who don't fall into the same tax bracket. We care all kinds of things about abortion, but we don't care about the world the way that God cares about the world. And that's wrong. There's all kinds of brokenness in our world. 
all kinds of wickedness and greed and selfishness and pride and abuse and bigotry and hatred. I cannot wait for the enemies of God to be made a footstool for his feet. That's a quote, by the way, from Psalm 110. That there is a day coming when, when all men will pay the price. Jesus will be victorious in a completed way. He is victorious, and that will be evidence to all people. So what's the, why, why didn't he just conquer all of his enemies immediately? Well, the Bible also teaches us that he desires that none should perish, but that all would come to repentance. It says in 2 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why is he... Why is he waiting? Because the story he's always wanted to tell is a story of grace enthroned, of grace on the throne, not just judgment. God desires that all would come to repentance. Jesus has, it says in verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 10, in verse 14 it says, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is a cool verse. It's a cool verse. He has finished this work, it is finished. He has perfected for all time. That's a, that's a positional thing. By the way, the, the verb tense, not that you care about verb tenses, but the verb tense of this idea of perfection or holiness in verse 14 is a perfect tense, which means it, it is finished, right? He is perfected, and then it says he has perfected those who are being sanctified. The verb tense there is the present tense, which means that there's an ongoing work that's still happening, a continuous work of sanctification, even in those who are positionally perfected. That you and I, when we stand before God, we are not held accountable for our sin because Christ has paid for that. We are in right standing with God. We have a a healed relationship with him. We have resurrection life. We are perfected positionally. But progressively, uh, we're still wrestling with our sin, right? There's still brokenness that's made manifest in each and every one of us all the time in our selfishness and in our wickedness and in our lack of respect for all kinds of life, right? We, we still have this brokenness. That is, being, that is being transformed in us over time. That's how sanctification works, remember? It's a progressive alignment with the purpose for which we were created. That's God's work in us. He has perfected those who are being sanctified, those who are being sanctified. It's an ongoing work in us that we're being conformed to the image of Christ. Someday, the Bible teaches that someday you and I will see the Lord Jesus face to face. And when we do, we will be like him. What that means is that we're not gonna always be in the process of sanctification, but there is a day coming when you and I will be glorified, which means we won't any longer be moving on the spectrum towards alignment with our created purpose, but we will be absolutely glorified with Christ. Jesus finished this work. He perfected once for all those who are being, those who are being made holy and those who are being sanctified. And it says in verse 15, the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. This is pretty cool. What we see in in verses 1 through 18 is is actually a really beautiful Trinitarian thought. We've already heard about the will of God, right? God's will as the source of redemption. 
Jesus' sacrifice, the Lord Jesus' sacrifice is the means of redemption. And now as we get to these last few verses here before we stop for today, it's talking about the way the Holy Spirit speaks to us. That, that's present. Like the way that the Holy Spirit speaks to us now, the Spirit is a part of the ends of our redemption, which is that sanctification, right? There's Trinitarian work going on. God's will, Jesus' means, and the Holy Spirit's ends. And what does the Holy Spirit speak to us? Two things. It's a quote, a reference we've seen before from Jeremiah. But two things the Holy Spirit speaks to us in this particular context. He speaks to us first a reminder that God wants our hearts, not just our obedience. That he doesn't just want us to become robots or automatons that know how Christians are supposed to look. We put money in the offering plate. We do all the deeds, but our hearts are far away. He was never interested in that. He always wanted our hearts. So the Spirit reminds us that his law has been written on our heart. But not only does it tell us, not only does the Spirit of God, I said it, the Spirit of God is not an it, it's a he. Not only does the Spirit of God speak to us and remind us of things we need to remember, but the Spirit of God also reminds us of what God has chosen to forget. He reminds us of what we need to remember, that God wants our hearts. And he reminds us of what God has chosen to forget, that our lawless deeds and our sin, he remembers no more. And it says in verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. You know, I I think there are probably some of you in the place today who live a life of constant guilt and shame. You feel dirty, you feel worthless, you feel unlovable, you feel so far gone and broken that God couldn't possibly care about you, and he certainly couldn't use you. Can I tell you all those things are lies? That none of that is true, that there is no one in the place that is so broken and so far gone that the love of Jesus and the grace of God, which is the story of mankind and the will of the Father on our behalf, can't be brought to bear. And the Spirit of God would speak to you wherever you're at today and say, you are lovable and God absolutely has a purpose for you and your brokenness is no obstacle to the powerful grace of God. The Spirit speaks to us not only what we need to remember that God wants our heart, but he reminds us of what God has chosen to forget, our sins and lawless deeds. The last thing I want you to see this morning, this is so cool. We've talked already about the fact that Jesus didn't just come for us out of necessity. He didn't just come for us because that's in his nature. He came as an expression of God's will, right? He said, a body you've prepared for me, and here I have come to do your will. But not only does he save us as an expression of God's desire, not only does he save us that way, but in so doing, he also paints a picture for us of how we're intended to live in response. Does that make sense? So there is a call for each and every one of us to set aside the part of us that would go, I need to do the holy things, I need to memorize the right Bible passages, I need to become the Christian robot, there's a call for each of us to forget about that because it's not our work of righteousness that saves us anyway. Set those things aside and look at Christ and follow his example. What does Christ do? Christ says, you don't want that stuff. What you want is for me to take the body you've prepared and to offer it in accordance to your will. Can I tell you that for each and every one of us this morning, no matter who you are, that's the same response. Jesus is modeling something to us. That we would look at the life and breath we've been given and we would say, here's what you gave me. It's for you. I'm here to do your will. He not only saves us as an expression of God's will, but he models for us precisely what our lives are intended to be as well, which is a gift of God lived out in accordance with God's pleasure and his desire. I don't bring my wife chocolate and roses. I bring her sweet tarts 
and tulips, because I know that's what she wants. God doesn't want your mindless obedience. He doesn't want your robotic religion. He wants your heart. And Jesus came and died in order to repair that relationship between you and he, because the story God was always telling is the story of grace victorious. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I pray that you would take these truths, and there's a lot of them, that we move really quick, but that you would take this central truth, this principle, that we are rescued from sin and death according to your will, that that was what you wanted. And I pray that we would wrap our arms around that and it would give us such a great and sincere sense of victory and joy. We love you and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.